Today's scripture reading is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again that you have brought us together as a people to hear your word, and your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, separating bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Father, it knows us. Your word is the word that reads us, and it reads us today, Father. It reads us and it proclaims to us words of hope and life as we see, Father, your desire for our life, a great purpose from the gospel. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us ears to hear. I pray that you make my preaching to be faithful and clear and true to your word. May your Holy Spirit be upon me. and May your Holy Spirit be upon us all that your word does not return void. I pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right. How many of you are in a section of your life or perhaps just feel like you're always living in a way where you just have tons of spinning plates in in your existence, just multiple things that you have to keep track of? Oh, i got a hand up. That's, That's great participation. The rest of you are not busy enough, but no, just, just the idea of spinning plates. You, you get to, through your day, and it's just like, my goodness, all I, all I do is just put a little extra spin on, on five or six different plates, hoping that the, the most wobbly one doesn't fall off, and I start the next day, and I, I get right back at it. And we think about all of those spinning plates, and, and, and part of what makes it complicated is that those spinning plates... Uh, are in various differences, different parts of our life, different different areas. So, so we have a spinning plate, two or three, in our in our workplace. Perhaps we have two or three jobs. We got a spinning plate for each one of those jobs. We got a spinning plate uh, or two or three for our our wife. We've got a list of honeydews, or we've got a, a list of things that we need to get done uh, for the household. Uh, we have spinning plates as as parents and uncles and. All these different responsibilities that we have. Then we have spinning plates of a social life. We have different commitments that we have made. We've, we've joined different associations and, and clubs and groups. And um, we have our social media presence. We have so many different things that we end up being involved in and being kind of segmented into, taking care of each and every one of these, trying to keep them from falling apart. We're also people of, of many different roles. And I think about myself. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a, a second career person. I, uh, I've got an entire life of people that only know me in the classroom. And I have now an entire uh, group of people that only know me as a pastor. We have all these different roles. If you're a, if you're a young mother, sometimes uh, you, you have the experience of everything that you do is just done for this one little person, this one little 
burping thing that doesn't even understand you and, and you don't feel like you even get to be able to spin plates in all these other places. Uh, if you're in your middle age, you're in this place where you're spinning plates, but you're starting to see that maybe there's not a whole lot of, of career left for you and you start wondering, well, what's next? What, what am I going to be? What am I going to do when uh, nobody wants me to spin these plates anymore? <laughs> I've become really good at spinning plates, right? Well, as you think about all of that, what it all boils down to in, in modern society, and I, I think we're in a, in, a, in a situation, especially in our cultural situation, that is different than it's been for many generations. We find ourselves with many selves. We have, we have a, a, a dad self. We have a son self. We have the self that we show at work. We have the self that we show on the weekends. We have all of these different selves. And sometimes these selves don't fit together. Sometimes being uh, yourself with this group of people doesn't have any overlap with yourself in your workplace. And so you have all these people that know you, but they they don't know the whole self. They just know a piece of yourself. And then when you step back and and you start thinking, who am I? Which one of these selves am I? What is my core self? Is there any place in my life where I am myself, or am I always just a sliver or a splinter of myself? And when you start thinking about those kinds of questions, then you start getting into some really tender territory. Well, who who am I? What am I? How, How do I know myself if what I am is just a bunch of compartments? I think we live in a world that, that um, has, has created what is, is called fragmentation. We are, we are fragmented people. We have parts of ourselves that come alive here and parts of ourselves that come alive here, but, but often there are no overlaps. We also have, uh, in addition to being fragmentary, we have a tendency to be compartmentalized. We keep our work in a box. We keep our family in a box. We keep our social life in a box. We keep our church in a box. And these compartments are part of managing life. I think this is typical for a lot of us in this stage and in this place. So a, uh, a, a social commentary from a, a, a newspaper wrote of this condition this way. He says, as the cultural and social worlds in which we root our identities splinter and drift apart, our identities move with them. Stuart Hall, one of the founders of the field of cultural studies, writes, the subject previously experienced as having a unified and stable identity is becoming fragmented, composed not of a single but of several sometimes contradictory or unresolved identities. Identity becomes a movable feast, formed and transformed continuously in relation to the ways we are represented or addressed in the cultural systems which surround us. And as Peter Berger comments, it should not be a surprise that modern man is afflicted with a permanent identity crisis. We're spinning plates like crazy, and at the end of the day, we don't even know who we are or what it all adds up to. So how, how do we get out of this 
life of fragmentation, this life of being compartmentalized? How do we, how do we build our identity again into the wholeness that God designed it to be? How, how, do we, how do we find a purpose that ties together all of the different things that we do? Is there a way for us to, to say, I understand who I am, and therefore all of these other things that I do make sense because of that? You see, that is what Paul offers to us right here in verse 17. He offers to us in in such a simple verse what we need to escape the fragmentation and the compartmentalization that creates for many of us crises of identity. It gives us the single unifying purpose to all that we do. As we look at this verse, we are going to see that the gospel is the one thing that you have that you can hold on to that brings coherence and purpose to everything you do. And so this is a call for us to to not think of ourselves as plate spinners and to think of ourselves in the various different roles that we have, but to think of ourselves as the gospel designed us to be thought of, as people of Christ, as Christians. And with that identity, we are able to approach everything in our life with coherence and with purpose. That is what Paul wants for us, and and I I, I trust that that is something that you personally need as as you personally inventory where you are in so many different places in your life. Verse 17 is going to give us three different ways for us to see how the gospel brings coherence and purpose to everything we do. Let me say that differently. Uh, The gospel brings coherence and purpose to everything we do in three ways, shown to us in verse 17. It's going to show us that it brings coherence and purpose by making everything we do about the gospel, by making everything we do about honoring Christ, and then third, by making everything we do about thankfulness to God. Let's take uh, each of those in turn the, the first way the gospel is going to bring coherence and purpose to everything you do is by making everything you do about the gospel. Paul starts verse 17 with these words, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do. Okay, I, I, I don't, this doesn't require a whole lot of effort to interpret. Whatever you do, means everything you do is included in Paul's description here. Everything, whatever you do excludes nothing. It encompasses everything. So there should be no one in the congregation this morning saying, this is just another sermon that does not relate to me. This sermon is your sermon. Because if you do something, it applies to you. Whatever you do. And then Paul makes sure that we we understand it, don't wiggle out of it. He says, in word or deed, in word or deed is a a way for him to to make sure that we understand when he says everything, he means everything. Word and deed is a a literary device called a, a merism, which is where you take one particular thing from two different places and use it to stand in for the whole. You see this in Genesis 1.1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He cites the heavens and the earth as a way of saying everything. 
So everything we do, Paul is saying, meaning in, a, in this meristic sense, word or deed, everything. Word or deed means small. Words are, are small. Deeds can be large, but small or large. Thoughts. Words are thoughts. Or acts, things that we do. The inside and the outside of who we are is part of whatever you do. Paul wants us to get this, first of all, everything is part of the gospel. Now, Paul is is talking about doing stuff. Doing stuff may sound a bit different than just believing and having the gospel by faith alone. And so we do need to talk about how does Paul understand the commands, the imperatives to do with his clear teaching that Jesus is enough. Faith alone in Christ is enough. In fact, we, we looked at... Uh, I left my bulletin. i got to get my bulletin. We looked at our two questions from the New City Catechism, and we saw that there are these two ideas called justification and sanctification. And so we need to recognize where Paul is in terms of these two different doctrines. Justification is the understanding that by faith alone, all that I need to be found right with God comes by what Christ has done in his life, death, burial, resurrection. All of my sins have been canceled by his grace. All of my righteousness has been imputed to me by his faithfulness. All of that is given to me By faith alone. I put my faith in Jesus, and that is where I get my standing before God. That is where I am saved. But the faith that saves, as the Reformers often would remind us, was a faith that was active. The famous expression, uh, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone reminds us that the faith that saves is a faith that comes with the Holy Spirit, which means the power of God to obey and to live pleasing to him comes with it. And so when we are in a justifying faith, we are also in a faith that sanctifies us, that calls us to live out the good news through obedience and through following through on various commands. When Paul gives us this command in verse 17, he is speaking to those who know they are justified, and he is calling them to live out the good news of Jesus by the command, whatever you do, in word or deed. Paul puts this together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where the, the justifying gospel and the call to sanctification are put side by side. Listen to these words from Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we are not saved by good works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith that saves us, births us 
into a life that demonstrates itself in good works. Verse 10. So, when Paul is talking to us in verse 17, he is not talking about whatever you do in the in sense of you need to earn your way to heaven. He is saying because you have been given justifi- justification in Christ, you now live out these good works that have been prepared for you. What does this tell us? When Paul says whatever you do in word or deed is part of the gospel, he is saying all of your life is a gospel concern. All of your life is a gospel concern. From that, I I think we need to grasp two implications. One, everything that we do matters. Everything that we do matters. When Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, and we are clear on that, that 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 means nothing is excluded, he is saying that everything that we do is under the vision of God. Now, this is true for everyone, whether you are justified by faith right now or whether you are living outside the gospel right now. Everything that is done, whatever we do in word or deed, is part of God's examination of our lives. There is nothing taken out of it. And so for those who may be standing here saying, I don't know that I really need Jesus. I don't know that I really have saving faith. I want to remind you from this verse that everything, whatever you have done in word or deed, will come under judgment. Listen to these verses, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul says in Romans 2, 16, On that day, judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And then a, a passage in 1 Timothy, where we are told the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The point of these verses is everything will come under judgment. Everything will be examined, whether good or bad, before our holy God. And so the question has to be, are you living inside the gift of God's justification? Because the gift of God's justification is this. If you have faith in Christ, then your judgment on judgment day is no condemnation Your judgment is blameless and holy. Your judgment is, as I see Christ, I see you. But if you are not in justifying faith, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then all you have done, good and bad, is going to come under the judgment of God. And you will, by simple fact of the matter, be found unrighteous as falling short of the glory of God. 
And so I appeal to anyone here who has, has perhaps thought, I'm living a good enough life, or you know, I have this, this moral scale in my, in my heart where I can say, you know, I feel like the good in my life is, is, is heavier than the bad in my life. And I think I can go to God with that. If that's in your head right now, I'm telling you from the scriptures, everything is coming under God's view, and everything will receive the just judgment. So I appeal to you not to stand before God by your works alone, but to stand before God by Christ's works alone and trust in him. Amen? Secondly, the second implication here is that the gospel gets all of us. By that I mean when you are in the gospel, all of you is in the gospel. All that we are is under Christ as Lord. The gospel does not recognize sections or fragments or compartments or exclusions. Everything that you are is inside the gospel. I I think that's obvious, but I think our minds play tricks on us. I think we have ways of carving out parts of our life that really don't have the authority of Christ over them. I, I know this because I, I do this. I mean, does, 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 does God really care how much I eat? The Bible says, whatever you do, uh, eating or drinking, do all for the glory of God. Does he really care what I am doing in a victimless sin? I mean, I, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody's, nobody's uh, offended. Does he really care what I'm doing in my privacy? Yes. That's not a compartment that's not part of the gospel. Everything falls under the gospel. There's a, a, a story. It may be legendary. I, I, I don't know. It, it, um, it's a good story, though, so you know that makes it worth telling. Uh, king of uh, Russia, Ivan the Great, uh, was, was seeking to get married to a princess in Greece. And so the requirement of the marriage was that he had to uh, convert and he had to be baptized. And he had 600 or some men who were part of his military guard. They were his elite soldiers. And they came with him to this wedding ceremony. And they came with him to this baptism. And they wanted to do everything that the king had done. But because the understanding of the Greek church was that soldiers had to give up their soldiering if they wanted to be baptized, the soldiers, when they went into the water to be baptized, kept their arms, their fighting arms, above the water. And so we have, when they are baptized, these 600 fighting arms unbaptized. I don't know if that's a true story or not. I was unable to fact check it. But the image to me is arresting. The idea that we leave some part of our lives out of the accountability of the gospel is something that is very much a part of our, of our warring heart. And my question to you, is there anything about your life that has been unbaptized by the Lordship of Christ? Is there a compartment? Is there a section? Have you, have you kept your thoughts or your habits or your desires or what you think is fun outside of the gospel? Because Paul says, whatever you do needs to be in the gospel. You see, to live in means that we're all in Christ. 
And to live out means that all we do is for Christ. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Therefore, let's look at the second way the gospel brings coherence and purpose to everything we do, and that is by making everything we do about honoring Christ. That's, that's the criteria. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, our lives are in Christ. We are known as Christians. That is what we are. His name is upon us. Do you understand what a privilege it is that the name of Christ is, the, is upon you, that people know you by his name? That he has shared his name to you and said, you will be a Christian? You will be a child of God? In the, in the book of Judges, the, the dad of Samson is visited by a, a pre-incarnate Christ. And the, the, the man Manoah, he says, what is your name? And this is what the pre-incarnate Christ says back to him. He says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. He is saying, you, Manoah, are unworthy of knowing my name. It is too wonderful for your ears. It is too precious to be placed upon your hearing. The name that has been given to us as Christians is the name that Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, these words, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your life bears that name. It's a gift of the gospel. So how do we know, perhaps, if if we are living lives pleasing to Christ? How do we know if, if we are living a life that honors Christ? Verse 17 is the perfect test. The question that we ask of of our behaviors and our thoughts and our desires is, is not, is this forbidden? It's not, will this be forgiven? It's this. Does this honor Christ's name? Does this honor Christ's name? A pastor by the name of Raymond Pritchard says it this way, the acid test for conduct, for questionable things, for bad habits, for angry words, for secret sins, for bad attitudes, is this question. Could God sign his name 
to this. Could God sign his name to this? And if the answer to that is no, then whatever you are doing or saying is not honoring Christ. It has been very sobering to become a pastor. Everywhere I go, I am a pastor. When I am really annoyed at the terrible customer service at Walmart and have every reason to rip into somebody, I can't do that because you know what's going to come out next. So what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. I have to conduct myself as a pastor to honor the office of pastor. But let me tell you something. That is no higher honor than this truth. I am a Christian. You are a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. And in whatever you do in word or deed, can Christ sign his name to that? Let Christ be honored in everything you do. Beloved, This isn't just to guilt you. This is amazing. How amazing is this that Christ is honored by us? I mean, what purpose and meaning does this give to our lives? Westminster's Shorter Catechism question one is, what is the chief end of man? That we glorify God and enjoy him forever. What, What Paul is telling us in this verse is the privilege that everything we do can glorify Christ. Every part of our lives, as insignificant, as, as, as unseen by the world as it may be, as, as tedious as changing diapers or whatever, can be to God's glory. I mean, what an amazing stock to the most menial tasks is given to us. I remember, I remember in... Uh, In uh, Matthew 10.42, Jesus says, Whoever gives a cup of water in my name will not be forgotten. The point of that is, I mean, how many cups of water have we given out? We lose track. I forget. You know, what these little things. But to Christ, they are precious. They honor his name. D.A. Carson uh, comments on this. The significance of this, he says, 50 billion years from now, if I may dare to speak of eternity in the categories of time, no one will be talking about the significance of Stalin or Pol Pot. But every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will still be remembered and celebrated. I mean, everything you do could last for eternity as celebration of Christ. What significance our days have. It'll be a delight when he shows us how we have pleased him. I think of the parable of the talents and and the, the servants come and they say, you gave me this and I got this. And he says to his servants, well done, Good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of your master. Whatever you do, in word or deed, could have Christ's pleasure upon it. 
good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master for that cup of water, for holding your temper. I I think this is astounding in our purpose and significance. But more, the third way that the gospel brings coherence and purpose to everything we do is by making everything we do about thankfulness to God. About thankfulness to God. Paul ends this verse by saying, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you have is meant to give thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see all you have, all that you are, as a gift to give thanks for? 1 Corinthians 4-7 speaks to, obviously, the Corinthians. Paul is writing to a church that I think is afflicted with the spirit of entitlement. They began to think they were special because at heart they were special. They really deserved all these graces and gifts and and extra uh, attention. And they were show-offs. And Paul just drove a sword and pierced that boil and said, what are you thinking? In 1 Corinthians, he says, what, uh, uh, he says for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, the number one killer of a life of thanksgiving is a life of entitlement. And the life of entitlement is not scriptural. The scriptures say right there, everything that you have, everything that is about you has been a gift. You've received it. You are are not the creator of anything. And if you have anything, it has come from the hand of the creator. The Bible recognizes no self-made men. Everything is from common grace or special grace. It's all, though, from grace. But here's the thing. What we are thankful for shows clearly what we think we need. If you're not thankful for it, you don't really think you need it. And God says, you need everything. Because everything is a gift. Do we we recognize that? As Americans, we are are proud of of a, a hard day's work, and that is not something I'm trying to take away. But we do not forget that the ability to work a hard day comes from God's common grace of waking you up, giving you energy, and saving you from 10,000 accidents that could have come your way. What is thankfulness? We, we must understand what thankfulness is because uh, I, I've experienced some exposure of, of a misunderstanding. Thankfulness, let's be clear, is not reciprocity. Thankfulness is not, I have to pay back God for all that he has, he has done for me. 
In, in, in our culture, uh, thankfulness or gratitude is, is often just a way of keeping your ledgers even. I mean, if, 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 you want, um, uh, if you want the best paycheck of your life, do my mom a favor. Because if you do my mom a favor, you will get back the best pie you have ever, ever had. That is, that is the way she, you, you, you scoop her driveway, you get a pie. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I'm, I've had a few pies in my life. Um, but here's the thing. You can't pay God back. When we are being told to thank God, to live in thankfulness to God, it's not because Christ has bought me and now I'm going to live a good life that pays that back. You can't pay that back. That's not why it was given to you. What you are supposed to do with thankfulness is to receive it with joy and to live it out with joy. How do we want a gift received? When you give someone a gift, how how do you want it received? I mean, when we spend time buying something more than a gift card, but actually, you know, buying something, oh, this person's really, really going to love this thing. I found the perfect gift. What, what is it that we want to see? We want to see their delight in that gift. They're, they're taking that gift and, and using it and, and, and enjoying it and celebrating with the happiness that, that you gave them through that gift. Well, that's God's heart in the gospel. What is the gift of the gospel? What, what is the gift of the gospel? Is it is it Forgiveness? Is it eternal life? Is it heaven? Those are part of the gifts. But the gift of the gospel is God. All of those gifts support the main gift that you are now reconciled to God. You are now a child of God. You now get to enjoy him forever. The greatest, most uh, transcendent, most beautiful, wonderful being says, I am yours and you are mine. I am like a husband to you and I cherish you like a bride. That is the gift of the gospel. And so, what does God want from thankfulness? What What does thankfulness look like? It means that we want our lives filled with joy in his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is not two things. Uh, Question one is not two things, it's one thing. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. He is saying that to glorify God is the source of your greatest joy. He has given us our greatest joy by giving us the, the, the delight of glorifying him. So living with gratitude is simply to live for God's glory alone. And why? Because all that we have, all that we are, is by grace alone. When you recognize it's from, uh, from a gift, it must end in his glory. Consider your life. Consider your life. Can you say that what you are doing, the life that you are living, 
is out of thankfulness to God. Can you give thanks in everything? On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, Mary, who was so overwhelmed with the love of God and and, and Christ's grace to her that had, had received her and made her belong again in the community of God, was just so overwhelmed with the gift that he he was there in her room. That she looked around and and, and she wanted to say, what what can I say to to say thank you? To to say, my goodness, my heart is exploding with my love for you. And she looked and she saw on on their mantle this old jar of of nard. It was the family heirloom. It was worth a, a year or more's wages. And she picked it up and she broke it open to fill the room with this precious fragrance. And it wasn't to pay Jesus back. It was because her heart was overflowing with the delight and joy of the presence of Christ. And the fragrance of that overwhelmed everyone in the room. That is making our lives And everything we do about thankfulness to God. So in conclusion, the the gospel is the answer to the fragmentary, compartmentalized life. In the gospel, we have coherence and purpose in everything we do because uh, because in everything we do, it is about the gospel. uh, And everything we do is about honoring Christ. Everything we do becomes about thankfulness to God. To live for Christ's glory and to give, uh, I'm sorry, to live for Christ's glory and to give us a thankful heart is uh, everything from God's grace. And so I want to leave you with an image of the very end. Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, give us this vision. The 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the beautiful, glorious picture for all who are living in and living out the good news of Jesus. In the gospel, Christ has given us the privilege of casting before him the shining crown of everything that we do, word or deed, before him as an eternal testimony to his honor and our joy in him. Beloved, whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.